Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Vita podcast, where we're going to help educate military veterans and their spouses on opportunities in Web3. Our plan is to host a series of industry leaders, many of whom are veterans or spouses themselves, so we can learn about their journey down the crypto rabbit hole while understanding opportunities for transitioning veterans into space. My name is Chris Perkins. I'm a combat Marine veteran who spent 15 years on Wall Street before transitioning into crypto myself. And before we begin, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca, who have dedicated their time and resources to make this podcast possible. Today for episode 13, we'll be speaking with Marine veteran Stephen Galbach, founder of Galbach Law, who is applying his expertise to assist companies and protocols to operate across the blockchain space. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Chris. First off, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Okay, sure. Well, I signed up for the Marine PLC program when I was a freshman in college at Yale University. Weren't a whole lot of people doing that in 1971. Uh, but then, uh, uh, you know, came uh, uh, early 74, graduated, got my commission. Uh, uh, actually, ended up graduating first from TBS, not academically, but, you know, sort of fun, sort of like a pitcher hitting a home run, you know, when you're not in your, <laughs> in your wheelhouse, just uh, having to do things in leadership and uh, uh, physical fitness. So I had my choice of anywhere I could have gone. Uh, I chose not Hawaii, but Okinawa. Uh, might have been temporary insanity, but uh, from a Marine Corps mentality, you can understand <laughs> uh, my choice. So that's that's an interesting time. You know, we're, we're, the, the Vietnam War was, was still going on, uh, and there you were in Okinawa, right on its footsteps. Uh, yeah, April of 1975, and my battalion was on standby for a couple of weeks to go in as uh, perimeter security for the evacuation of Saigon. Uh, instead, they sent us down to the Philippines, and we set up tents for refugees who came by the tens of thousands, you know, on anything that would float. Uh, then I was at Camp Lejeune for my last year in the Corps. Uh, I guess maybe the most interesting thing I did was I translated uh, a book by a certain general named Erwin Rommel, The Desert Fox. If you remember the movie Patton, you know, where Patton says, uh, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. Well, I actually read his book, and since I had learned German in college, I could translate it. We used it for uh, Italian uh, tack tests in Sixth Marines. Um, uh, yeah. Later, my son, who uh, went into the Marines uh, 10 years ago, um, he, he told me they were using Rommel's book uh, at, at the basic school. So... I don't know if it was my translation or not. I've never figured that out. But uh, the CEO of Sixth Marines at the time I translated was uh, a certain Al Gray, who became one of our greatest commandants. So if, if he did it, maybe. I don't know. Never find out. After that, uh, yeah, I went off to uh, law school. But uh, any questions about the first part? Yeah. So so there you were, tip of the spear. You, you, you go into help with refugees in the Philippines. Must have been an incredible experience. Is there anything that stands out during your military experience that really shaped you going forward, whether from a leadership perspective or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, coming out of high school and college, you know, I was more focused on academics and uh, it was just great leadership training and how to, how to get along with people of all sorts and how to get the best out of people, how to work with people of all sorts of different capabilities, identify what their strengths are and, uh, you know, how to work to, uh, to produce. Got it. Can, can you walk us through your transition? So you, you came back, you were in six Marines in the East Coast, and you decided to get out. Um, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah. So, yeah, I applied to a bunch of law schools. To my surprise, I got into Harvard Law School. I knew I didn't have quite the GPA for it, but I guess they were giving vets a little bit of a break. Um, but then when I was in law school, I got to tell you, I, I just, uh, 
was much more efficient and focused than I had been before. Like in college, I decided I'd work like 40 hours a week and do the best I could and have a good time in Boston. It was the best Liberty Port I'd ever been in. I really had a blast. Uh, and I guess if you've seen movies like The Paper Chase or Legally Blonde, I mean, you know, people at Harvard Law School and other law schools burn themselves out, you know, working all the time. I still had a lot, you know, in the tank when it came to, you know, getting ready for exams. I ended up making law review based on grades. I was there for two years with uh, John Roberts, working side by side. He's now, of course, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, a bunch of other very interesting people and characters. Uh, yeah, that was law school. Right. So we're still a couple of decades before blockchain was invented. So can you tell us what, what tell us about your legal career? How did it go and, and, and what did you do? Okay, so I started out in a fairly um, typical path, uh, clerking for a federal judge. Um, yeah, actually, from a military standpoint, it was interesting. He had a huge portrait of George Patton uh, behind his desk. And we just talked about Army and Marine Corps for almost the whole interview. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and then he introduced me to one of his clerks, uh, left the room. The clerk took me into the corner. Remember him saying, huh, Marine Corps. That's just what the judge needs. I was CIA. Well, the name of that clerk was William Barr. He has been attorney general twice, okay? Uh, first for the first George Bush president, and then most recently for Donald Trump. Uh, and met a bunch of characters uh, uh, when I was working for uh, a big law firm afterwards, uh, biggest one in DC. Uh, but then um, a, a couple people, Bill Barr and, and, and one other, invited me into uh, Reagan White House staff. I served two and a half years as a legal policy advisor. Then when Ed Meese became attorney general, I went across town with him. I was a senior special assistant for another two and a half years. So that was my government experience. Wow, pretty incredible. So eventually you, you got into blockchain. And I know you, that's your passion and you've been spending a lot of time in the space now. What brought you into crypto? How did you get introduced to it? Okay, so first of all, when I left the Justice Department in 87, I set up my own law practice. So, you know, over the years, uh, you know, from time to time, I've had a partner, you know, this year or that year associated with a firm, but mostly it's been my own thing. I've been able to shape my own legal career um, in a way that enables me to help raise my family along with my wife, which has been very important. Um, and almost all of the time I was doing work for tech companies. Uh, how much tech experience do I have? I learned some basic programming in a language called basic when I was a senior in high school. There was only one computer in the entire county, okay, but my high school had a, you know, a, a link to it. Uh, I learned some Fortran programming language in college, and then I did work for tech companies, but about blockchain and crypto, it happened five and a half years ago. Uh, my oldest kid, uh, he was a computer science major, and uh, he came to me with this plan with uh, uh, three other partners. Okay. And when he told me the plan, first, uh, I had to ask, what's an ICO? He explained that's an initial coin offering of a new cryptocurrency digital asset on uh, the Ethereum blockchain. I knew what Bitcoin was, but frankly, I had to ask what Ethereum was. Okay. And uh, then I heard their business plan and I said, guys, that's a really brilliant plan from a business standpoint. But I got to tell you, if you go ahead with it unchanged, you're going to be offering a security that is not registered. It's going to be more trouble than uh, you, it could possibly be worth. 
uh, if you get in you know, wrong with the SEC. So I think most of my clients would have either just stopped, you know, or they might have gone ahead unchanged and said, who needs a lawyer? But my oldest kid, he had been a paralegal for me uh, when he was in college. We'd even done a jury trial together in a tech case for two weeks in federal court in Massachusetts. And he helped me win the case. Uh, and so he had a good legal mind. Um, and so he said, Dad, uh, what would make a token not be a security? Okay. And we talked that through and he redesigned his entire plan. Okay. So some of your listeners might recall the SEC. It was back five years ago, July of 2017. They came out with their first pronouncement ever about crypto and tokens and ICOs, initial coin offerings. So we looked at that and said, hey, Tim, you're right in the sweet spot of what the uh, SEC is saying for a token that's not a security. So he went ahead. It was successful. Um, but one of his partners said, hey, Steve, um, could you put your legal opinion in writing? This had a big effect on my career, okay? Uh, my legal opinion was 31 pages long. I covered the entire waterfront of all the Supreme Court law, other federal courts, SEC. Um, and then that same partner at Tim's of my son said, uh, can we publish your legal opinion on our website? I thought, oh man, do I really want to do that? You know, that's like popping your head up from the foxhole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he said, I mean, basically in talking with these guys, I said, okay, I'm confident in my legal opinion. I'll stand by it. So yeah, what the heck, go ahead and publish it. So um, they had that legal opinion published on their website. They did a successful token sale. And um, what happened was that made me the only lawyer that anybody in the world knew who had issued a legal opinion under U.S. law about what would make a token not a security. There were, there were many, many dozens, probably hundreds of legal opinions written by major law firms, but they never allowed their clients to publish them. And a funny thing happened. Okay, the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, the SEC started investigating all of these ICOs. My ICO, my son's ICO, had a published legal opinion. And the SEC's uh, explanation, they said this publicly, if you're going to issue a cryptocurrency token on the theory that it's not a security, you have an obligation to explain your reasoning. Well, we had explained our reasoning. All these other ICOs that had paid who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to big law firms, they hadn't explained anything in public. So those legal opinions did them no good. Meanwhile, my son, they never knocked on his door. And it totally changed my legal practice because at this point, people started coming to me. And that's been my legal practice the last five years has helped two things. I'd say two things, Chris. One is helping my clients to comply with US law and regulations. But the second thing is, as those regulations have gotten more threatening and ominous toward crypto-related companies, especially in the last year, year and a half, uh, I have constantly been on the lookout for other jurisdictions that are good for blockchain companies to operate from. So that's been my law practice. Well, first question is, I would love to know the billable hours that you charged your son. Now, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Well, he, paid, never he, enough. he made good money and he paid me what my time was worth. So, and we have a good relationship on that basis to this day. <laughs> the uh, second thing is that like, I've been in the space for a long time. I come from traditional finance. I really understand the value of opinions and the amount of courage it must have taken to issue that opinion, because you're putting your entire name and your reputation and your practice really on the line when you issue an opinion like that, right? And make it public. Um, did the Marine Corps inspire you for that? I mean, it seems like that's your pedal, <laughs> right? Well, it certainly inspired me to put my body where my mouth is. And yeah. So if that means, you know, standing behind my legal opinion, yeah, that's what it was. And it, it worked out very well. I've got absolutely no regrets and very thankful for how it worked out. Yeah, maybe I can step back for some of the listeners um, to really unpack this issue uh, that Steve's talking about. And the problem that we have in the United States is that we have a bit of conflicting law and regulation when it comes to cryptocurrencies. According to U.S. regulation, everything is a commodity uh, except for movies, onion receipts, and these things we call securities. And securities, maybe, Steve, you can explain exactly how, how we apply the Howey test. But this is really at the, the crux of a lot of uh, the issues we face in, in the cryptocurrency industry. What bucket does it go into? And then depending on the bucket, um, it's, it's effectively regulated or not regulated. Maybe, Steve, if you could just give us a couple of like just high level points of the difference and why this is so important, this opinion that you provided. Sure. OK, the, the whole heart of the matter. OK, back with five years ago, my son's ICO was, is this token something that's just offered for investment and speculative purposes? Or is this uh, token like something that gives you a right to use a product or a service or a network? As lawyers, we call it a license. And there's a Supreme Court decision uh, called Howey, right, which goes back to 1946. But there have been other decisions since. And there's one called Foreman in the mid-70s that basically said if something gives you a a right to consume like a product or a service, then it's not a security. So that's how Tim redesigned his entire business plan so that they did not sell their tokens until their service was ready and operating. Okay, that that was the key. Okay? Excellent. But what's happened, I got to tell you, is the SEC has gotten more and more hard to deal with. So they have never issued clear regulatory guidance about, so here's exactly what's the difference between a security and non-security token. But they just come out with more and more enforcement actions and they're making it more and more risky. So frankly, at this point, um, the bulk of my legal practice has been focused on alternative jurisdictions. So so are you at the point now, like b before we get into these other jurisdictions, uh, as far as the U.S. goes, what's how does this play out going forward? Are we just going to be left in this like ambiguous situation, uh, potentially some regulation by enforcement? Or do you think that there's an, there's an end or a, a, a happy ending on the horizon? How do you think it plays out in the U.S. before we turn to alternative jurisdictions? Okay, well, there's certainly, you know, lawyers in the U.S. and, and, and people in Washington um, and people in, in, in across the country who have been really working to try to convince the Congress, the SEC, the other regulatory agencies. You've got a multi-trillion dollar sector of the world economy, okay? I mean, already Web3 is a trillion dollar sector in itself. So do we want to just force this out of the U.S.? 
Uh, do we want to, you know, just give up all the value and the economic growth and the jobs that that can provide? So there's there's a strong case to be made, but um, for myself, I, I, I've just looked at the trend line. Okay, I got to tell you, Chris, the trend line is it started a year ago. There's something called the infrastructure bill. It said anybody who deals as a business with certain crypto transactions has to um, be, comply with the requirements of a broker. Well, these crypto companies can't comply with those requirements. That's just a way of shutting them down. It goes into effect January 1st. Then you've had similar um, developments in July. The SEC, for the first time, branded some tokens of uh, some decentralized finance, which you would know as a Wall Street vet, you know, are, are providing easier, more cost-effective ways for people to do traditional financial you know, transactions. And also DAOs, that's Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, DAOs. And the SEC branded these tokens as securities. Okay, that makes it extremely risky for any DAO or DeFi project to operate in the U.S. Then you had about, what, a month and a half ago, something called Tornado Cash. It was the U.S. Treasury Department applying sanctions for the first time ever. They were not against a company. They were not against a person. For the first time ever, they were against a technology. And so it's a technology that any Web3 company could easily end up, even accidentally, inadvertently, being involved in a transaction with Tornado Cash. Suddenly, you're talking five years jail time and up. Uh, so what that all leads to, oh, gosh, um, I've got to advise my clients on risk levels. And those that want to manage risk now are asking me, so what's what's the best jurisdiction? So now as you look at jurisdictions that make sense, where are you directing your clients? And, and can you tell us about that journey on how you got to you know these conclusions around which jurisdictions you recommend? Yeah, sure. Over the last five years, it's been a changing pattern. Anybody involved in crypto is probably familiar with Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands. Uh, Bermuda, in other words, British Commonwealth jurisdictions, also Switzerland, uh, Singapore, but they're they're not. None of those are really good for Web three companies. I mean, you can see somebody like maybe um, uh, Coinbase, you know, gets a license in Singapore, but it's a very costly process. It's highly regulated. And for most Web three companies, uh, they're looking for a lighter uh, regulation jurisdiction. Uh, that led me um, in January to start checking out El Salvador. Well, okay. Uh, what, what, I, what I knew about El Salvador was they had made Bitcoin uh, legal tender along with the U.S. dollar. So when you're in El Salvador, you buy things with U.S. dollars, exactly like in the U.S., uh, but you can also buy things with Bitcoin. So my first trip there, I loaded up some Bitcoin on a wallet on my iPhone and uh, yeah, first full day I was there, paid the admission charges to the Atami Beach Resort uh, using, using Bitcoin. It felt pretty good. First time I'd ever done that. But the real question was whether the, the country is open more generally to that whole trillion dollar economic sector. And the answer I found out is absolutely. From the first time I contacted the embassy in D.C., they were very responsive. They said, we are the land of economic freedom. We want to become a tech hub. And everything has flowed from, from that, from uh, January, February up until 
I just got back a week ago from uh, a, a week in El Salvador. Amazing. So, so if you could summarize, you know, the services you're providing to protocols and companies now, uh, is it you're helping them operate within El Salvador um, as a jurisdiction? Do you continue to shape the the regulation and, and work with the government there on, you know, appropriate regulation and, and legislation for crypto? How, how are you um, assisting clients here and now? Okay, Chris, uh, there's two parts to the answer to your question. One is under existing El Salvador law, you can set up a corporation there. You can run any sort of business. I'm in the middle right now of setting up uh, what's essentially a DAO, uh, but using the structure of El Salvador corporation law. Uh, the other thing is the lawyer down there who's working with me, my local counsel in the capital, San Salvador, is an absolutely brilliant guy named Ronaldo Vasquez. And he came to me a couple months ago with an idea. Why don't we draft a DAO law for El Salvador? And as your listeners might know, DAOs can register in Wyoming. And then also Tennessee has made it possible more recently. But it's not at all clear the U.S. government you know, is going to follow suit. And, and the trend line, like I said, is, is hostile. Uh, so at this point, we've got a DAO law four pages drafted. It's being considered at a high level of the government. There was just a Spanish language news article a few days ago. It was the first public mention of this. Um, and uh, I'm just dealing with government officials who are open, who are very, very bright, uh, who know what the, you know, the risk factors are getting into this and what, what the benefits are. And they're, they're ready to talk it all through. So, um, whether they pass the Dow law or not, we've already got companies that are onboarding to El Salvador and finding it a good place to, uh, to operate from. So Steve, you're spending this time uh, working closely with El Salvador. It seems based on them making uh, Bitcoin legal tenor, uh, you saw that culturally they were really interested in establishing themselves as a, as a technology hub. Um, what is it like as a country? I'll tell you, right now is an incredibly exciting time to be dealing with El Salvador because the country has been completely transformed. When I went down there first visit in March, it was still one of the most dangerous countries in the world. End of March, uh, there was an outbreak of even more violence, and the government responded with an emergency law that did two things, made it a crime to be a gang member, and uh, allowed pretrial detention of, of gang members who were arrested then by the police and the army. What's happened is they've arrested thousands, really a couple tens of thousands of gang members, it uh, turned out the gangs had developed a monopoly on crime. You put them all in jail or the rest of them are in hiding and there's virtually no crime. It's now the safest country. I mean, just by statistics, whether it's homicides or petty theft, it's the safest country in the Western Hemisphere. It's crazy. And the people are totally motivated. They're totally pumped. They love to have tourists come. They love to ask you, what do you think of our country? Uh, the government's totally open. They want to develop their economy. They look at a trillion dollar sector of Web3. They say, hey, why can't we be a home for some of this? So. It's been an exciting time. The other thing we're doing down there is with uh, Salvadoran friends uh, that we've made on our trips there this year, uh, we're starting a foundation and uh, tech companies are donating to this foundation. And then the foundation is doing projects to uh, uh, like help educate and train Salvadorans in all the types of jobs that they can do in Web3, uh, just build up the infrastructure of the country, like for clean water. And it's sort of like, well, what it is, it's like tech companies contributing to help make a good and welcoming home. Wow, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating the way that uh, 
I mean, that wasn't so long ago, and it sounds like the change is happening very, very quickly. And, and I assume you attribute a lot of that to their focus on technology and their embrace of, uh, of cryptocurrency. And they just have a government that, <laughs> that's got its act together, okay? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what happened while I was down there uh, last week. Um, there was a murder in a town near the capital, okay? Those used to be, you know, a dozen murders, two dozens per day. Now it's you know, very seldom that there's a day with a murder. Within an hour or two, the government responded by sending 2,000 soldiers and police to completely surround the town. Within a couple of hours, they had captured the murderers. They also captured six gang members. And the message to the whole country is, hey, uh, if you're a criminal, the stupidest thing you can do is commit some serious crime because we can be down on your head in no time. And the people just love it. The president has like a 90% approval rating. And everybody there I'm talking to, Taxi drivers, Uber drivers, you know, people in the hotels, people in the restaurants, they're just loving it. Uh, and the, uh, it was the poor people who were most oppressed by the gangs. They've got this total freedom. It, it, it's just crazy to see the transformation. Do you expect other countries to follow suit? Well, I hope my own country does. There's certainly <laughs> some mayors and governors who could learn a lot from President Bukele. Uh, um, I mean, basically, you've got a lot of Latin America looking now at El Salvador, uh, number one, in terms of solving a huge crime problem and actually solving it. And secondly, in terms of um, like financial sovereignty and independence, that's the whole thing about Bitcoin. Uh, this president, you know, he's lost, you know, Bitcoin's gone down in value since he bought some for the country and started illegal tender. And frankly, that doesn't phase him for a moment. He's just saying this is economic, you know, sovereignty and independence for our country so that he's got the dollar, you know, which is good. And the dollar's been going up in value and he's got Bitcoin. He's, he's got, you know, diversification, right? Um, and, and the emphasis down there and the emphasis for their ambassador, wonderful person, Mayor, uh, Milena Mayorga in the U.S., it's all, we're a sovereign country, okay? And we're charting our own path. And the people love being independent. The people love experiencing freedom. Got it. So you're a Marine. You made the transition that ultimately brought you to the space. What advice would you give to a, a transitioning veteran or spouse trying to get into Web3? Just that there's a whole lot of opportunity there. So I'll tell you, my son who went into the uh, Corps 10 years ago, he was an intelligence officer for four years. Then he got out. He went to UCLA Business School. You'd think that would get the dream job. But it actually didn't for him. And his older brother said, why don't you go to a four-month coding boot camp? And that's what Will did. And at this point, nobody cares what degrees he has, okay? Nobody cares if he was officer or enlisted, if he has a high school diploma, a college degree, or MBA. Uh, he's just assessed by what he can produce. And so that's what Web3 is. It's like, you know, what you can do. And it's not all you know, techies doing coding. It's also support staff. I mean, one thing, we're doing a conference in January for Salvadorans. We're going to acquaint them with the entire range of job opportunity, all the way from software development to manual laborers, you know, um, because you need facilities. And if you're going to be a Salvadoran company, you need to have some physical presence. You need to have, you know, some feet on the ground, basically. Yeah, we talk about this all the time, how you don't necessarily need to be a computer scientist to be successful in this space. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit more? Like what type of jobs you see that are out there, whether it's for the, the folks in El Salvador or for those transitioning vets? Sure, glad to. Okay, so uh, any Web3 company 
they're going to need somebody who's like an administrative assistant, you know, just setting things up, planning travel, etc. They're going to need somebody who's like a bookkeeper, okay? Uh, doesn't have to be a CPA, somebody who can keep track of the finances. Uh, they're going to need somebody who's a receptionist in an office, whether it's El Salvador or whether it's the U.S. Um, you just need people. Um, I'll give another example. My youngest son, his name's Philip. Uh, he is not a software developer, okay? Uh, but he just learned uh, the business. Of course, he had a couple older brothers who, who could get him started. And now he just organizes meetups and conferences among Web3 people. Uh, I was just at a conference like this in Miami two weeks ago. 500 people showed up. Uh, I'd say the majority were software developers, but there were one or 200 who were not. They were totally comfortable mixing it up, learning what the opportunities are. Uh, it's just a fast-growing sector in a world of opportunity. And that was the uh, the Urbit conference, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's called Assembly. Uh, it was people involved in the Urbit network. And uh, fascinating world to get to know. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, 10 of them went down with my son Philip to El Salvador directly from Miami. Uh, I think they had something of a thrill ride because the hurricane was approaching and there was a lot of turbulence. But yeah, just had a great time together, uh, you know, learning a new country and seeing what the opportunity is. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of the urban ecosystem. It's a fascinating, fascinating, quickly evolving space. Uh, last question, Steve, how can people connect with you? Okay, uh, easiest is uh, email. I'm steve at galbachlaw.com. Um, galbach is G-A-L-E-B-A-C-H. I always say for spelling and pronunciation, it's Gale like a gale force wind and Bach like a composer. So steve at galbachlaw.com. There's also uh, my website, which is uh, 3w's.galbachlaw.com. Uh, that's the easiest way. Awesome. Steve, really, really appreciate your comments and insight and counsel today. Uh, I learned a ton and just really wanted to, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much, Chris. Enjoyed being with you. And again, I also wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca, uh, for doing what you do, and, and we're deeply appreciative of your support. For those interested in learning more about Vita, please connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Please pick me on Twitter at PerkinsCR97. Thank you so much, everyone. See you next time.